Welcome to The Climate Torch from Entrepreneurs for Impact, where we interview CEOs, founders, and investors focused on building companies that tackle climate change. We cover lessons learned from failures and successes, insights into funding business growth, book recommendations, favorite podcasts, and much more. My name is Chris Wedding. I'm a former private equity investor, investment banker, founder, and professor focused on climate investment and innovation. I'm also the founder and chief catalyst at Entrepreneurs for Impact, where we support climate CEOs with roundtables, offering peer-to-peer advisory investor intelligence and executive coaching, because we believe in three things. Businesses grow when people grow. Number two, there's no reason for things to be so lonely at the top. And number three, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. So grab your favorite beverage or hop in the car for the commute and let's dive in. All right, we are here with Jennifer Wagner, president at Carbon Cure. Uh, and Jennifer, it's great to have you here after seeing all of the you know amazing awards you all have won personally and as a company. Cool to have you here to tell your story to The Torch. Thanks for having me, Chris. Happy to be here. Well, hey, so we just started these things off with the, the uh, uh, most kind of softball of all softballs. What do you guys do and, and what makes you uh, unique at Carbon Cure, Jennifer? Yeah, so uh, Carbon Cure, we're based in Canada uh, on the East Coast uh, in a place called uh, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And uh, we're, we're sort of one of the fastest growing companies in the space of carbon removal technologies. Uh, so this may be a, a new term for some of your listeners. And what we do is we actually offer a retrofit uh, for the concrete industry to adopt in their plants, which allows them to recycle waste carbon dioxide to make their concrete both greener and higher quality. Do you want me to talk a little, like how much detail do you want? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, maybe just a couple of comments. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting that you're in Nova Scotia, the obvious hotbed for, for innovation in the world. Uh, I say that lovingly because, you know, I mean, I'm in the Southeast, and I think a lot of folks don't think of the Southeast as a hotbed of innovation. But look, innovation's everywhere. Um, so love that you all are not in some obvious place. Um, a reminder, right, to investors and other you know, players out there uh, to look for innovation outside of the obvious hubs of a Bay Area, Boston, New York, or what have you. So that's great. I also want to call attention to the fact that you're a retrofit uh, solution. You're not seeking to kind of, you know, build your own plants or reinvent, you know, some sort of vertically integrated solution, which I'm sure I know is very intentional, but maybe just say more about why you all chose you know, a retrofit solution and just kind of, kind of your, your, your go-to-market, I suppose. I think from day one, this was something that we always wanted to consider. Uh, there are a lot of great technologies out there that require, you know, massive CapEx costs, overhauling supply chain, new regulations. Right. Um, and the, the barriers to scaling those solutions are enormous. And, we, we need all of the solutions to climate change, uh, including those high CapEx solutions as well, which maybe have um, uh, more ambitious reduction potential. But I think what's really beautiful about what Carbon Gear does is that 
we're having an impact today because it, it actually takes less than a day to install the technology. Before COVID, we would actually get on planes, fly down to the plant and walk them through the install process. But now we do that all remotely. So the scalability of our solution is quite unique. And we don't wanna be um, abandoning all of the infrastructure that's already in place to make concrete. Concrete is actually uh, the world's most abundant man-made material. So there's, think about all the infrastructure that goes in to making that industry work. Mm -hmm. If we were to walk away from all that and start from scratch, it would take us so much time and money to have an impact, but we're able to work with existing infrastructure, existing supply chains and existing regulations today so that we can actually start to chip away at the climate problem now. Well, I think it's a good lesson for some listeners thinking about, you know, go to market strategies. And it's almost like, you know, maybe this is not true exactly for carbon cure, but I think some entrepreneurs would say, well, you know, if I just kind of plug into someone else's supply chain infrastructure capex, you know, I'm, I'm giving up top line or I'm giving up, you know, profit. But the reality is the, the speed to get to market, the scalability, the ease of install, the ability to have partners, not competitors, in the kind of business as usual, it seems to me like it, it kind of dwarfs the concerns an entrepreneur might have, right? Of again, capturing more top line or, or, or bottom line by, by, by playing more roles essentially in the rollout. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like being industry friendly is super important. Um, like if we, were, if we were to walk into a concrete plant and say, hey, you know, stop buying from the same suppliers that you've been buying from for the last five decades. And in some cases, those suppliers are their parent companies. Like right. That just would not work. Um, so from day one, we've always prioritized ease of adoption for our customers because that's where we'll get the impact. And I think the numbers speak for themselves. We have live tickers on our website which show our impact in real time. So our mission as a company is to reduce 500 million tons of CO2 annually by the year 2030. And we're at about 100,000 tons a year currently. So we have a long way to go, but 100,000 tons in the last year is actually a pretty good number. And if you compare it to some of the other solutions in this space, that's like orders of magnitude more than what others are doing because they have these, these high CapEx solutions uh, and, and other barriers, which we just don't uh, face. So I think we have to look at the big picture when we're thinking about scalability of solutions and when you think about climate, time is our enemy. So, right. you know, if you think about the, the, the time value of carbon, carbon reductions today are worth a hell of a lot more than ones that are 50 years old, which, you know, we may not even get to if, if things go really wrong. Yeah, I just want to reiterate one thing you said that um, you, you can install these retrofits in a day and that before COVID, it was hopping an airplane and now you can coach someone through installing these things in a day, which is, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, but I think, I think gets to your, to your last point, right? Um, it's almost like the, the discount rate or something on future carbon reductions versus today. It's, it's a huge discount rate. Um, and that you all can create them today. I love that you have a ticker uh, on your, on your website. I saw that, uh, and that, that's carboncure.com. For folks to go, obviously, learn more about what you're doing, but also see that that ticker as well. Um, 
what was the, what were some of the first reactions? I wonder, Jennifer, as you approached uh, uh, concrete companies with your solution. I mean, I, I think any change is uh, is a problem, certainly for decades old industries. I think about the analogy kind of to you know um, the energy markets broadly, whether it's you know transportation or whether it's you know power. The, they, the, the dominant players have been doing things like they've been doing for, for decades. So what were some of those first reactions? How did you get them comfortable with changes to, look, very expensive infrastructure they're managing and, and risks, right, to lost revenue? Yeah, it was not easy, um, for sure. In the early days when we had essentially only lab data to lean on, uh, picking the right first few partners was absolutely critical. And I think that's one message that I'd like to leave with your listeners is finding those early adopters is could sort of make or break your future. Um, uh, if you think about, uh, you know, crossing the chasm, if you're familiar with that philosophy, the, the early adopters who are willing to take a chance and willing to uh, believe in your mission as a company and understand that the solution is probably not perfect right out of the gate. You're going to have to go through some iterations. You're going to have to take your lessons learned from industry and go back to the lab and come back six months later and test something else out. So if you don't have that mission alignment with those early partners, you're done. So I think for us as a company, if we sort of rewind to a decade ago, finding those mission aligned early adopters was critical in helping us to get that industry data that we needed to be able to go show other producers and say, hey, look, we've done this in real life settings. Here's the concrete in the sidewalk or in a building. This is real and it works. Uh, and let's try it in your plant as well. And then you sort of move to the next phase of uh, adopter who uh, needed to see that, that industry validation before making a decision. And of course, now, fast forward a decade, the types of customers that we're working with are very different. So they may be more risk averse, but the risks are much lower now that we have 10 years of industry experience under our belt. Yeah, for sure. How, how did you all measure or determine uh, who would be early adopters? What kind of, I don't know, attributes or you know, commitments at those companies, size, location or whatnot made you think, yeah, they're a likely early adopter? They tended to be smaller independent companies who you could uh, easily access, you know, upper management or the owners. Uh, and you could sort of gauge from the first five minutes of the conversation if, if their mission aligned with you. So for us, all of the decisions we make is around our mission of this 500 megaton target. And so if somebody's in, in the, the first five minutes of the conversation is asking about, you know, well, where's your white paper on this and your test on that and long term studies in this like that's probably not a good fit for an early adopter because we just right. didn't have any of that information at the time mm. so we'd have to find the other type of um, customer who said i believe in your mission i believe climate change is real because not everybody did right. uh, and they wanted to help and they wanted to play a part in the solution and so in the, that first five minutes of those conversations it was pretty clear who would be a good customer and who wouldn't at that stage development yeah right yeah it, it's well, that, that's a very tangible example. Uh, thank you for that. You know, you, you, you mentioned the word, and I, of course, I can see your facial expression. When you say the word believe, right, do they believe in, in, in climate change? 
Um, I always th thought that was the, the um, toughest verb, you know, to be using for something like this, which is so, you know, so science-based, but alas, you know, here we are. I, I wonder if you can talk about your, uh, your path. I think lots of listeners either, you know, haven't found their path yet, or they're, look, I think we're all figuring out uh, our path to impact uh, and taking care of our, our families, et cetera. Um, you, you've got an interesting path, some science, you know, some business. W where were you, Jennifer? And then kind of what, what's, your, what's your path to here, president at, at Carbon Cure? So I'm a science nerd. Uh, I'm a chemist by training. Love it. I love numbers and data. And uh, I was doing my uh, bachelor's of chemistry in Montreal. And actually we have quite a few uh, McGill grads, which is just kind of coincidental at the company, but maybe that speaks to the culture. Uh, and then I didn't really know what to do after my undergrad. So I said, hey, I'll get another degree because that's what you do. And so I uh, went to Halifax uh, to um, uh, Dalhousie and did my master's in science and uh, love the science, love the data, love the analysis, but the lab was definitely not the place for me. I remember there was one professor who said something to me, which really resonated with me. He said, he said, I didn't like your presentation from a scientific perspective, but if you were selling me something, I would buy it. And so I sort of, you know, I was quite upset by that. Wow. Internalized it because yeah. I think it was true. And so I said, okay, well, what do I make of this? And so I signed up for an MBA uh, because I didn't have a business background, but uh, kind of realized that maybe that was just part of my DNA. So I decided that, you know, science and business actually was a great combination. And so did my MBA uh, in Halifax. And I remember on the first day of, of my program, I started asking around some of the profs and some of the other uh, students, you know, what kind of careers are you looking at? Uh, you know, I was interested in science, business and sustainability. And they sort of laughed in my face and said, you know, those, that doesn't exist. Like there are, there are no options out there. Right, right. And so I kind of got discouraged and, uh, but I didn't want to take no for an answer. So I plowed forward and probably spoke to a hundred people and asked them the same question, you know, what can you do that combines science, business and sustainability and eventually connected with our founder, Rob Niven. And so at the time he was running a carbon management consulting firm and then just launching uh, what would eventually become Carbon Cure. And I remember we had coffee with a mutual friend and he said, you know, your, your uh, background kind of aligns with mine. Uh, I'm sure I could find something for you to do. So come by on Monday and we'll figure it out uh, in the rest of history. Wow, wow. I mean, I, I like a lot of things about what you just said. I mean, just starting from the very beginning, um, studying in Montreal uh, and McGill, uh, you know, we're big fans of Montreal, um, great friends there, honeymoon there, lovely, lovely city. Um, I also laugh because you're, I think your science are telling you that you sounded like a, you know, a salesperson, you know, compliment or not a compliment. And I, I recall, so I'm a scientist by training as well. And as an undergrad talking to a botany professor and just saying, look, I, you know, I plan to go into academics. And part of the reason, this is one of the many reasons, at, at least at that point, that, that, you know, I hate to sell, you know, selling seems kind of whatever, sleazy or, or, or not authentic or whatever else. And he literally almost fell out of his chair laughing at me. He's like, look, man, I don't care what you're doing. You're always selling. He's like, in my job as a professor, I'm selling students in my class. I'm selling a 
funder on my grant proposal. And I thought, huh, well, man, I am, I am naive. And now I think about what I do today, having switched from, you know, environmental science guy in the rainforest to startups and coaching and banking and all the rest, tons of cells, right? Tons of, um, look, communication, right? Communications of pros and cons. Anyway, uh, I also relate to you being in an MBA program and talking to folks about, look, how can I find a career combining science, business, sustainability, and getting, you know, not super favorable responses. And I can picture, you know, in, in MBA, me being in MBA classes many years ago, and, you know, we'd have a, a say, say, a guest speaker kind of, you know, poo-poo different, oh, I don't know, sustainable business strategies or green building strategies. And I would kind of retort with data. <laughs> and I recall at one point, the, the, the main professor stepping in to say, all right, now let's just change the topic, you know, I was like, I wasn't getting heated, just coming back with data, come on now, refuting refuting the, the, the message here. I also love that you essentially did primary research, right? Pretty extensive primary research, talking to a hundred people uh, about what, what options existed. Um, I mean, really in some ways, you know, a sign of an entrepreneur, right? Whether you knew it or not at the time, that kind of hustle of talking to folks, um, getting one-on-one -on -one feedback, and look, from, a, from launching a business point of view, let alone figuring out a career point of view, uh, pretty large sample size. Um, so anyway, kudos on that. I think a good lesson for listeners as well. Yeah, and just to be clear, this was like over a decade ago. The, the, the situation has dramatically changed oh, yeah. for the better. I think yeah. if I were to ask that same question today, people would say, oh, well, where can I start? I've got a long list. I've got a thousand people to introduce you to. And honestly, at this stage, I would be, I think people would be hard pressed to find a career where they couldn't com, uh, consider sustainability. I think if, a, if, a, if an organization doesn't have that, um, what's the word? If, if they don't, if, if an organization today is not considering sustainability, they're in the dark. So I think um, the, the situation is a lot more optimistic for folks who are looking for career opportunities today uh, than 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that. Um, here we are kind of reminiscing on, on the past. But yes, present day, uh, totally agree. In fact, you know, par part of my work is you know, teaching at, at, at Duke University and UNC Chapel Hill and, and working with graduate students, figuring out kind of where to make an impact and build a career. And I tell them, serious and joking, you guys have it so easy. I was like, when I was trying to find a path in this, you know, I was the weird long-haired guy trying to understand business and such. Um, and now, you know, look, you got BlackRock saying this, this stuff is important, right? Um, actually, I, I read to your- The last 18 yeah. months, is, it's, the situation has changed dramatically. I oh, mean, it's... think about the, the acceleration of just the conversation in the mainstream around climate and how that ties into business opportunities and challenges. Like it's, it's dramatically changed in the last 18 months. I, I, to I totally agree. This morning I was, I was reading up on kind of the latest the latest and greatest on our favorite four-letter word, SPACs, and, um, and, and saw that that um, I think since 2019, a third of the SPACs have had some sort of clean tech sustainability focus. And I thought, wow, that's a really high percentage. Um, and so I think now, maybe this was like two months ago, there is like 330 funded SPACs seeking targets. And if, if that percentage is true, that 30% are still are seeking clean tech-ish companies, man, 
are are there 100 companies ready for uh, going public? Question mark. Anyway, yes, uh, mainstreaming of these topics. Hallelujah. It's about damn time. Um, let's see. So so paint a paint a bit of a picture here, uh, Jennifer. You know, flash forward whatever five or ten years. Um, you know, what wh where is carbon cure? Where is the where is you know carbon dioxide in the concrete industry? Yeah, so today our technology is being used by about 300 concrete plants around the world. Um, that's in seven countries, uh, which is uh, pretty exciting. And we also have distributors in five other countries. So for us, we're in rapid scaling mode. Our next target market would be Europe. Uh, and we're also launching new products as well. So uh, in order to hit that 500 megaton target, there's a few things that we're working on. So one would be expansion of our existing core technology, but also launching new products, which also take waste CO2 and put it into concrete. Um, let me just hold on one second, pause. I sure, want to sure. see if there's any other points I want to make. I think that's fine. You can ask your next question. Yeah, yeah, cool. I think that's interesting to note. I mean, look, e even though you all are, you know, cutting edge, Technology and really cutting edge in terms of adoption. It, it isn't like you're. It's it isn't like you're just executing, right? You're still innovating plus executing, uh, which I think is is a good reminder uh, to folks, especially with the, the whole debate. Well, maybe it's less of a, de a debate today, but you know, innovation versus deployment. Kind of which do we really need? You know, to address climate change, obviously we need we need both, uh, and you all are, are are doing both kind of at the same at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so on the topic of growth, look, it takes it takes capital to grow. Uh, you will have had you know success in this regard. I wonder if you have any comments on perhaps you know your path to funding growth, um, advising other you know entrepreneurs on look how do you how do you how do you get investor attention, communicate progress. Um, share a vision without seeming like your feet are not on the ground, right? An exciting vision without showing like you're just, you're floating and like with, with rose colored glasses kind of thing. Anyway, thoughts on, on funding your growth through capital, uh, Jennifer. So for us in the early days, it was mainly, we were funded by angel investors and government grant programs. At least in Canada, there's been a ton of support from, uh, both provincial and federal governments for clean technologies. And I know there's been some announcements recently in the U.S. as well. So uh, that's a particularly good fit when you're early stage. And then over time, as we continue to grow quickly, we raised several rounds of venture fund funding. And uh, we're now backed by some of the most sought after climate tech investors in the world, uh, such as Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates Fund, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Carbon Direct, Mitsubishi, and others. So we've had a pretty good track record in terms of attracting um, uh, high quality investors. We've also been able to scale on the revenue side as well. So when we install the technology in concrete plants, we charge the customer a monthly license fee to use the technology. So that's something else that's quite unique about what we offer is that we don't charge an upfront CapEx to install the technology. We actually install the technology for free and the customer in turn pays us a monthly subscription fee to use the technology. So we have revenue as well coming in. And then we're also working on new revenue streams 
which I'd like to speak to you around uh, carbon offsets or carbon credits. So this is an interesting model that we've been uh, introducing over the last 18 months where customers like Stripe and Shopify have committed to uh, investing in the space of carbon removal. So they're willing to pay for carbon reductions. So what's interesting about the model we've designed is that we bring those buyers to the table. We bring in that uh, carbon credit revenue, and then we actually share that revenue with our customers, the concrete producers, as an incentive for them to use the technology more. So that encourages them to adopt the technology at new plants in new markets and use the technology as much as possible. And those actions also create additional credits, which can then be sold to other buyers. So it creates this beautiful flywheel effect. And that's a really important mechanism to scale up carbon removal. So the more investment you can bring in in terms of uh, credit buyers, the more, uh, the bigger the carrot is for the industry to adopt these new technologies. And I think that's something that Stripe and Shopify have really emphasized is that the reason why they're doing it is that they understand that these technologies which provide carbon removal are absolutely critical for us to meet our climate targets. And the only way to get there is to invest in the space so we can scale up and costs can come down. And so you'll, you're, we've been seeing quite a few big corporates investing in the space of uh, carbon credits. And I think that that eventually will be brought into the mainstream as well. Yeah, uh, first of all, I, I, I was not aware of that, that uh, you all are moving into to offsets through these negative emissions. So great, um, and, and look great that, you know, companies like, uh, you know, Stripe and Microsoft and others are intentionally seeking out negative emissions, not just from bio-based, which is great, uh, but also from, you know, more kind of tech-based um, uh, solutions. It's interesting that you all share the offset revenue. Uh, well, maybe, it, well, I'll say it's interesting. It's important that you share the offset revenue with the plants, with your customers. Uh, I mean, look, in effect, you're both, you're both creating, you know, the offset. So on one hand, it makes sense. I can also see, on the other hand, um, it wouldn't be required necessarily um, to share that. So, I mean, I think, I think kudos to you all for, for making that, that choice. Um, I think, you know, I see similarities with, with other groups in the, um, in the bio-based, you know, space. I mean, I'm on a, the board of a company called WorldTree and the, 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 the farmers, right, uh, can receive a share of, of these offsets. Um, anyway, it's, it's reinforcing, isn't it, uh, to motivate that, uh, you know, partner slash customer to do more of this to create more offsets. It's, it's also worth noting that, um, you know, the, the world of offsets uh, has a lot of champions and also some naysayers um, who say that, look, you know, offsets are just kind of a cheap way to, to keep doing your business as usual. Obviously, that's not where, where you all are. Um, uh, but, but I think it's worth mentioning, right, that, that look, offsets come in various uh, uh, kinds of qualities, if you will. There are, you know, many third-party standards and verifiers um, that should be used to track things like, you know, leakage or additionality or is it verifiable and so forth in order for these offsets to be to be real. But, but you know, I was talking to someone yesterday and said, look, they were like, you know, what do you think about offsets? And I said, well, you know, again, quality, good, bad, but they're, they're going to happen and they're going to scale like crazy, I think, because 
all these companies and states and cities and whatever else committing to net zero, they cannot get there, right? 100% off of zero emissions directly. So it has to be outside their their four walls or their or their supply chains. So then what, right? And you know, I'm sure you all are perhaps tracking. Uh, I think it's the uh, International Institute of Finance. Uh, they created this task force for for scaling voluntary carbon offsets. And man, the the logos of the companies that are part of this task force on all parts or kind of in, in all seats of the table. Um, you know, they're, they're for real companies with certainly interest in seeing offsets scale. But, but again, from like the finance sector who understand how should we bring the efficiency, liquidity, transparency, checks and balances of the finance sector globally to the offset sector to help them scale legitimately. Anyway, all that said, yeah. exciting that you're moving into offsets, exciting that you're sharing it with your, your partners. And I think it's, it's, the, it's the beginning of more high quality offsets, I think, to come, you know? Yeah, I think one point I'd like to make is that uh, not, all, not all offsets are treated equal. And I think our, our position here is that for any solution that either reduces or removes carbon, we need a portfolio approach to meet our climate targets. Like there is no silver bullet approach mm. to getting to where we need to be in terms of climate targets. But I think from the offset perspective, there needs to be some consideration for quality because the cost per ton to plant a tree or a forest is much different than the cost per ton to directly capture CO2 from the air. And we need both of those types of solutions uh, to, to meet our climate targets. So, so we fall into the camp of the engineered type solutions, yep. uh, which tend to be more expensive than some of the nature-based solutions, but we do need both. And so I think there needs to be some consideration for quality uh, and that as we scale those engineered solutions up, those costs will come down over time. But that's the only way that we can get those costs to come down is if we invest in the space today. Yep. I think you used a great word to describe that. I mean, a portfolio, right? I mean, think about maybe not our individual portfolios, but certainly for you know some limited partner endowment, pension fund, et cetera, you know, they've got their pie graph or their pie chart, and it's got all sorts of flavors of risk return and different sizes of pies or pieces of the pie rather. So I think it's a great analogy or great word choice there for how you build a portfolio of offsets as well. No, no silver bullet. It's, I think it's also super interesting that you all have something of a SaaS model. I mean, you wouldn't call it that, it's not software, but a licensing model. I mean, talk about scalability. You know, you wanna get a customer to say yes, <laughs> Well, tell them you'll install it for free, right? That's pretty darn motivating. Um, and, and since you all obviously know what your product can do, the results it can deliver, that confidence means you're, you're fine, right? I mean, it's fine. You're, you know there's more upside um, with the licensing model and it's, it's an easier yes and it's stickier, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's also a good uh, you know, takeaway or insight for listeners as well. How can you? get your product to customers for free and ride, ride the, the benefit train with them, uh, assuming you can finance it, of course, but that's, that's part of the overall strategy as well. Anyway, important, I think, lesson there too, Jennifer. Yeah, I think that also speaks to sort of our company core values too. Um, so we're, we have this mission of 500 megatons and we have six core values, which we really do live and breathe each day. And so one of those is 
is uh, is innovation. And so I think innovation just doesn't apply only to like engineering. Uh, it can mean a, a, a lot of things which you apply at different stages of the of the company's life cycle. So in the early days, we were innovating on the research side, trying to really understand how how it worked in the lab. And then we switched gears. And how do you innovate in, in on engineering? How do you bring those mm. solutions to the mm. real world and make them cost effective and scale it down as, as, as much as you can so that you don't have to charge the customer that much? Right. And then how do you innovate on the business side? How do you get that business model tweaked so that it makes sense for you and the customer? And so now we're innovating on the scalability side. How do we build a scalable model so that we can go from 300 plants to 100,000? Uh, and so I think innovation is something that really is part of our DNA and it, um, it can it can mean different things at different phases of your development. Uh, well said. And did I also hear 300 plants today going to 100,000 plants? So there's 100,000 plants in the world. Okay. And we're in three, 300 today with one technology, but yep. we have a, a few other technologies that are um, being commercialized as well. So um, those technologies could be adopted at the same plant. Um, so there's 100,000 potential customers out there for us, and we really are just scratching the surface. Well, I mean, talking about a, a pie graph, it's nice to look at, to think about, you know, the business you all are building with just 300 plants, and the total addressable market is, you know, 100,000. Well, that's pretty exciting, uh, I think. Again, not one product, but multiple products. Uh, cool, cool, cool. How about, let's see the next one here. Um, step, maybe step above, you know, Carbon Cure specifically, and just whatever comes to mind on the following topic. Entrepreneurship, right? What do you find to be the hardest? And what do you find to be the most uh, rewarding, let's say? So entrepreneurship is what really gets me excited. Um, every day there's new problems to deal with. Um, like some of them are big, some of them are small, uh, but there's always some problem to, to tackle. And I actually really love it when the solution is not initially clear uh, and there is no playbook. Because if there's a playbook, like someone else can do that. Like that's not exciting to me. Um, right. I think the magic is really in figuring out what the problem is and then mapping out um, a solution to get there, which takes time, right? Um, so all of the decisions we make are guided by this 500 megaton target. And I find our commitment to that mission and our company core values is really tested every time we face a new challenge. You know, it's easy to throw your hands up and say, it's not gonna work or I'll, there'll never be a solution. Um, and we've said these things uh, over the years too, but I think building the right team and developing that culture of not being afraid to tackle those problems um, needs to be part of your company's DNA to be successful if you're um, in, in a tech startup. And so maybe I'll give one example. So we're a finalist in the uh, $20 million Carbon X Prize competition. So it's a competition for organizations to convert carbon emissions into valuable products. And we're one of five finalists competing in the final round in Alberta. And so the competition has this strict set of guidelines that you must follow to be eligible to compete. And uh, we made it through to the final round. And I remember. I think it was like a Friday afternoon and we were all sitting around a table in person. Uh, I think we were about to go out for beer and we reviewed the guidelines and someone said, you know, this is not possible. It'll never work. 
I ran the model and there's like a 0% chance that we'll win. Uh, but we forced ourselves to think about the problem in a different way. And uh, we sort of, you know, said goodbye, uh, uh, went home for the weekend, sort of think about it. And literally on Monday morning, our lead engineer came into my office and said, I figured it out. Mm. And so for him, he needed to think about the problem in a different way. So the plan that we eventually developed was not only simpler and less expensive to execute, but it also formed a foundation for a new technology spin-off that we've now commercialized. Uh, and it also gave us a significantly higher chance of winning the final prize. Wow. So I think for us, you know, it's okay to initially say, I don't think it'll work, but to give yourself some time to think creatively about how you could reframe the problem uh, and come up with some creative solutions can really um, just transform the way you see the world because there's always going to be challenges. Like every day will be something else thrown at you and um, you have to be have that sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Like conviction that you can solve the problem. Right, right. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like the confidence that as you drive through the fog, you're not running into a tree. The road continues, you know, uh, beyond that patch of fog. Uh, just I guess don't drive too fast. I'm not sure where that analogy breaks down. Anyway, uh, I think part of what I hear too, Jennifer, is um, you know diversity, diversity in in perspectives and training and whatnot to to be able to reframe uh, uh, um, and find new approaches to the to the challenge which gets at all sorts of you know, uh, uh, diversity in how we hire, how we train, how we promote. Uh, it also reminds me of, I don't know, may, maybe it's an Einstein, maybe it's a, 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 a Abraham Lincoln quote of something like, if you had you know, 60 minutes to solve a problem, you know, they would spend 55 minutes um, um, making sure they, they knew the right question uh, to ask. So it's kind of, it's kind of about reframing uh, as well. Uh, cool. Well, let's uh, let's move to kind of shorter, um, you know, recommendations. Let's say for listeners uh, as you know, let's say homework. Perhaps uh, is there a book you recommend folks read on on, on entrepreneurship or on other uh, topics? My favorite book for entrepreneurship is called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And I don't know if you've read the book, but it's a, a, a goal-setting framework called uh, OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. And it's a framework that uh, Google and many other high-performing companies use to set goals. And the idea is that the objective, the O, defines what you want to achieve. So what's your goal? And then the key results are how you will get there with specific measurable actions. Um, what's really in interesting about the framework is that it's fully transparent across the organization. So every single person, including the CEO, sets their own OKRs for the quarter. And it really helps the team uh, stay focused on what actually matters, prioritize. And it also fosters collaboration and alignment across the organization because everything's fully transparent. Mm. So for us, we've been implementing this framework for the last two years or so. And it's really helped us to build up this a high performance team where we can ultimately map out a path to achieve our goals. I, yeah, I've, I've not studied that too much, but I love, I love the fact that um, everyone sees it, right? Every, everyone sees the okay and the R um, that, that feels very different. I mean, it's almost like, you know, either direction from the top to 
proactively think about how you help others, you know, reach those key results. Um, or it could also be, I suppose, you know, grassroots or part of the culture where people are kind of hired because they 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 like to help <laughs> to help others, right? Um, uh, which which of course is is pretty gratifying individually and for the whole for the whole team. Cool, it's on my list. Uh, how about a podcast? Uh, are you a podcast person, Jennifer? I like to do, let's do a podcast when I'm doing my laundry. Um, I like my climate journey. Uh, the host is Jason Jacobs. Are you familiar yep. with that one? Oh yeah. 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 I'm, I'm part of the community and frequent listener and contributor to the, to a uh, contributor part of the, an active part of the community learning and, and adding resources were helpful. Yeah. I really love his approach and I find there's so many changes happening in climate tech right now. And, he has a really um, unique way to get inside the head of the people who are actually shaping that transition uh, and helping to scale those organizations. So some of my favorite episodes would be um, like Shopify CEO was on there. Uh, yep. Stripe's climate team was on there. Yep. Um, Jonathan Goldberg from uh, Carbon Direct. So for us, like those are the leading minds in the space of climate tech. And so I, I really would highly recommend uh, my climate journey. Yeah, I, I, I second that. I've learned a ton from the podcast, but also from the, the Slack community uh, as well. Is there a quote, I wonder, uh, Jennifer, that, uh, that comes to mind frequently in your path? Yeah, so this may be a bit of a, the recency effect, but um, Amanda Gorman, you know her, the poet who sure. delivered the, the poem during Biden's inauguration. Yep. Every word in her poem inspires me, but... Another one of her quotes actually uh, particularly resonates with me, which is the only approval you need is your own. And for me, that's sort of my number one life philosophy is uh, you'll never be able to please everyone around you. Mm. And uh, as a friend of mine puts it, uh, other people's opinions of you are none of your business. Um, <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, like right. you will never have any regrets in life if you're true to yourself and you make decisions according to your own moral compass. The rest of it doesn't matter. It's very good. Yeah. In fact, maybe I need to reinforce that to my, my kids over our dinner tonight. That's, yeah, that's great. That's a great one. Uh, well, just as a, as a wrap up, uh, Jennifer, um, uh, great to get more inside the business of Carbon Cure and your path and recommendations and why entrepreneurship is so uh, invigorating to, to be constantly solving problems. Any, uh, any final message? Uh, you'd want to leave or resources for for the listeners, be they be they entrepreneurs, early stage, late stage, or entrepreneurs at large corporations making a change from the inside. I think COVID has provided a unique opportunity for people to really invest in their networks. So most people are in the living room on their computers at home. So people are quite accessible, more so than they've ever been. Um, so I'd say don't be afraid to reach out and build your network, ask for advice, um, you know, establish those partnerships. Um, I think uh, starting a climate, if you're an entrepreneur, it gets a journey. Uh, so buckle up. Um, but don't forget to have fun. Like I think if you, if you lose sight of why you're doing what you're doing, then it might um, feel more like a job and less like a life calling. Uh, but like for me, every day when I wake up, I feel so lucky to be doing something that is having an impact that actually uh, will impact lots of people. Uh, so I feel very uh, privileged 
Um, I think, you know, climate entrepreneurship is arguably the most exciting sector to be in right now. Um, so have fun, but also understand that you have like a massive responsibility uh, to make sure that we scale up these solutions as quickly as possible. And I'm a, I'm a glass hustle kind of person. So I'm optimistic about the future uh, and feel that collectively we've got the right people and the right technologies to tackle climate change. Uh, what keeps me up at night is whether we can do it fast enough. Mm. Well, that's a perfect um, wrap up to, to this torch interview. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the reason I started this, this torch series with climate uh, executives back whatever early summer last year is that you know everywhere you looked it was just like depressing news and and stress and so forth and I thought man well that's that all that is true uh, but in my day to day you know working with invest, investors and and um, and startups and and students and so forth in the climate tech and renewables space like I just come home from work and I, I want to go back to work except that I, I'm happy hanging out with the family at night. Um, and so, yeah, it's just so much to be excited about. Uh, so that's yeah, again a perfect, a perfect finish, uh, Jennifer. Well, listen, um, I'm excited. We're all excited to see um, uh, you all scale to make it so easy for these concrete plant, concrete plant operators to say yes, to align incentives, and then to continue to innovate on the business model and share things like carbon offset revenue for a kind of a self self reinforcing. A benevolent machine uh, to create concrete that's better than normal concrete. And oh, by the way, sequesters CO2. So anyway, kudos. And um, I'm sure, well, I hope that folks listening will find ways to reach out and support you all in this process. Great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Awesome. Have a great weekend, Jennifer. Yeah, take care. Cheers. listening to The Climate Torch from Entrepreneurs for Impact. If you'd like to learn more about climate finance and startups, I write a weekly newsletter called Zero, which you can find via the footer on our website, entrepreneursforimpact.com. In these, I also write about personal development and conscious leadership with questionable attempts at humor. Finally, if you or someone you know might benefit from joining a private club for post-accelerator growth stage climate CEOs and investors, and schedule a call at our website. Our year-long cohort with just 10 to 15 executives helps members make better decisions, scale their businesses more quickly, be held accountable to their top personal and professional goals, create more time in their day, motivate their teams, and work on not just in their ventures. Plus, we've got a member-only climate investor database with 550-plus corporate and project investors to help leaders become more investment savvy. Until next time, remember this. We need more than $1 trillion invested per year to hit our climate goals. And big problems mean big opportunities. So if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? All right, let's get to work, y'all.